Welcome back to the Detroit is Different podcast. And I'm here with someone that is a friend of one of the people that really make this whole thing come together. Friend of Suzanne, but more so a friend of Suzanne. Uh, from what I saw her presenting in the presentation of a conference, she is a friend to us. And when I say us, legacy Detroiters, people that want to stay in a home. And staying in your home is becoming more of a... I would say a human rights issue. <laughs> it may have always been. It, actually, it has always been. It's just as prevalent as a human rights issue in 2022 as it probably was long, 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 long ago. Especially when you think about cities like Detroit. So, Sarita Scott, how are you today? Okay, I'm well. Thank okay. you for having me. How are you? Oh, all is well. All okay. is well. See the the whole professor vibe and everything. I'm I'm with it. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm about to get that get that. Um, I guess they would say knowledge, but I still call it game. You know what I'm saying? I do my game. best. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm about to submit a paper. I feel it. I feel it. So before we get into that, uh, I just gave somewhat of an introduction for me on board and people that are familiar with Detroit is different know that. But, Professor, at UAD Mercy, you have a wealth of experience in knowledge, in communities, uh, especially in Detroit and in different stock. And before we get all into that, let's just get into classic Detroit story. What's the Detroit story? What brings you or your family to this city? Oh, my goodness. The classic Detroit story. Uh, first, I will always say I am just a, a very passionate Detroiter. I like that. Um, love the city. I get my Detroit story is very similar to everyone else's. You know, mm -hmm. my family migrated here. My dad from Alabama, my mother's mother from Georgia. Um, but I think I have a lot of having that kind of classic Detroit story touches on a lot of different things. My mother lived in Black Bottom, so mm -hmm. she was one of those families that moved when they did the you know urban renewal and, and decimated the whole neighborhood. Um, uh, I grew up on both, I claim, I probably claim east side a little bit more, but I grew up on both sides. I, Jeff Chalmers, Six Mile Livernois. I went to Renaissance High School. Okay. So I'm just, yes, uh, there's lots of little Detroit stories within my story. So it's like, wow, you came over here and saw two-way streets and was like, wow, this is amazing. Just, just messing with my east side. You know what? <laughs> yeah. It's like, this can happen? <laughs> yeah, I know. Y'all just love the east, east side is wonderful. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So you mentioned Alabama and Georgia. And as we look at a lot of the great migration lines, I mean, they follow the train lines. But mm -hmm. those are two of the places where a bunch of black folks. Mm-hmm migrated from you know that's why it's always surprising when i meet black folks and be like my people from texas or from arkansas or something i'm like y'all didn't go to chicago <laughs> you know but um alabama georgia uh whereabouts in alabama and georgia Ooh, Al alabama lowndes county so lowndes county which is Where like is outside <laughs> outside montgomery okay and and um georgia it's um oh, that was that little bitty town um, the little town that's known for having all the catfish. I can't even think of the name because this is my grandmother. Okay, so people, my mother's born in Detroit. Right? <laughs> Where is this? There's like a, a little town in Mississippi that's like the catfish headquarters. Mm. That's where her family's from. Okay. So um, <laughs> Montgomery. 
mm-hmm. has a strong ties to Detroit for many a reasons. Yeah. Um, did you have like some of those connections that carried over in extended family? You know, not really. My dad has his own very interesting story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so almost all the family moved up here. He didn't really know his father. Mm-hmm. It had always been an interest of mine of going back down there and kind of tracing his roots. Um, my grandmother on the other side was, you know, she was a very typical, didn't really want to talk about what happened down south. Mm-hmm. And honestly, for your listeners, if they haven't already, I would strongly encourage everyone to read The Warmth of Other Sons. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you don't get the migration story from your family, which a lot of my family just didn't want to talk about it, you understand why when you read the book. And it just brings into context just how harrowing it was down there. And the people who left were leaving, I mean, for in a lot of instances, hell. Yeah. I mean, um, I hadn't even really thought about it. You just get so used to that narrative of everybody coming up, and we always think that that was about, you know, obviously it was some opportunity and jobs, and we know the promise of the, the $5 wages, you know, in the auto industry. But the flip side of the story is that a lot of them were just leaving really terrible situations, a lot of fear, a lot of um, uh, just horrible conditions. And uh, her work in that book is just amazing um, and really gives us a better understanding of our history. Definitely add that to the list of things that I want to catch into as, you know, uh, Coleman A. Young's autobiography starts with that. You, you, you see the connection between escaping the Ku Klux Klan yeah. and the need to sneak away to Detroit. Yep. And this is also what kind of disjoints some of our family histories because a lot of names had to change because of needed safety precautions but they want to talk about it mm-hmm. yeah and but unfortunately you're right what that did for us is that we a lot of times we don't have the connections i mean yeah. i didn't have we didn't have a lot of family where a lot of families would go back you know every summer and visit mm-hmm. we went a couple times um and you have the kind of memories that you read about you know dirt roads uh, i had a, a great aunt living in like a shack you know mm-hmm. that kind of thing but we never went, like, as I got older. And I think that was also partly my father wanting to put that behind. Yeah. And, and, and it's unique as I hear more of these stories. And I had a really rich interview sometime in this year at the, uh, shout out to Lazar, uh, the Black Spirits Conference, that it's also a lot of, not, it's, it's not one of those things where I know people are thinking ka-ching, but many of our families still do have properties and lands in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Um and when I say it's not a ka thing, meaning like you're not going to like, you know, just walk up on a, a, a farm full of uh, abundant right. oranges. Right. And, and right. Like, hey, white man, get off my property. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. It's probably going to be a little bit of cultivating, uh, definitely involve the courts. But this is uh, commonplace for many of us. But that disconnect mm-hmm. um, is definitely not spoken about usually. Um, Jimmy Boggs, another... Um, legendary Detroiter has mm-hmm. that same story where it's like, nah, I don't even want to venture into that thought process. Yeah. Uh, so that story um, does reign true. So into Detroit, Black Bottom, your parents, how, how do they, do they meet in Black Bottom? Do they, what's the, how do they intersect? So my mom's a real Detroiter. My dad is a Southern boy, as he says. So he didn't come <laughs> up until he was about 16. Okay. They met in high school, mm-hmm. Eastern High School. And they were just friends. And then my dad went to the Air Force. Wow. And they wrote letters. 
And that, and when they came out, like they got married. The the old school DM. <laughs> right. <letter>. <laughs> and <laughs> they have been made uh, fifty six years in August. Wow, that is that is that is beautiful. Uh, so. So with that, I'm pretty sure maybe your whole life your your mom's been jazzing on them about the accent or something. <laughs> you know, my so I think when they were younger, but then my dad uh, went to school and he actually used to teach. My father used to teach at Wayne State. He okay. used to teach psychology. Hmm. So I think he um, tweaked it as he started okay. moving in different circles. <laughs> as they would say, like the different uh, in it, you know, they'd be like, "You still got cotton under your fingernails." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of those classic jabs, some of us city folk. <laughs> oh, yes. I think he got a lot of that when he first moved up here. Because he was late to the game, you know, come up from high, in high school. So. so so in that world, um, with that, that's unique. Uh, psychology, uh, as mm-hmm. you know, it usually it sparks a lot of young students. Like that first year you go to college, it's like, wow, psychology is interesting. Because you're being pitched all these theories and Sigmund Freud and the brain and the id and the this and the that. And uh, Kari Frazier, not necessarily even a Detroit is different thought process. <laughs> a lot of that stuff is from black doctors and black science, period. But, you know, that's, that's Kari. Yeah, no. I- so... But uh, with that, uh, to to follow through and to stick in that space, and then you said Air Force too. That may line him up. Did he actually serve? Did he actually do a tour of duty? No, he did not. Mm. It, this was in. He graduated from high school in fifty nine. He was in the service from like sixty to sixty four. Wow. So he missed, po- um, stationed in uh, Barcelona, mm. picked up a little Spanish, and you know. Mm. but did have the opportunity to use the bill to go to school. That's powerful. And and that also is very, um, that's peaceful um, because during that time when we think of so many of the the close of what was happening in Korea, the rise of what was happening yeah. in Vietnam. Yeah, he just missed it. You know, and he was like right in the window where oh, it was I like, know. Yeah. I don't have to go through that sure trauma. Yeah. Um, and, and then... When we think about your childhood, what uh, we, we're saying black bottom for that, what neighborhood would you say do you remember most as a child? Oh, Jeff Chalmers. So ah, wow. <laughs> Jeff Chalmers. The big houses um, and long streets. Well, you know what? Uh, Two-family flat. Mm-hmm. Grandmother and uncles lived upstairs, mm-hmm. and then our family lived downstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, very classic childhood for a Gen Xer. Um, close-knit neighborhood kind of thing. Lots of kids. I mean, it was so different. I remember just being, you know, six with groups of kids walking to the store and stuff. Stuff you don't think people would feel like you couldn't do nowadays. Um, It was just a very different time. And and Jefferson Chalmers, uh, as that is one of the, as we say, targeted neighborhoods of revitalization in some ways. And then in other ways, when you talk to the people over there, especially legacy Detroiters, it's like, "Mm -hmm." Um, but it also anchors like I I immediately think of the Fisher Mansion and Hare Krishnan. Mm -hmm. And uh, we think of. Uh, being close to the water. Yes. And, and the stock of the homes over there have such unique builds and designs. Very like, much, yeah. Um, almost definitely artistic. Mm-hmm. But by design, this was, it's like the, that, that housing stock is, is a, what would I say? Like the doorway is so differentiated. 
It's really eclectic. I mean, when you drive through there, the mix, and it's sad now because certain streets still look amazing, like Marlboro. I mean, has some just mind-blowing homes, um, and some of them, like Newport, just unfortunately a lot of um, blight and and a lot of homes that are gone. Mm-hmm. But growing up over there. Um, it was just beautiful. You know, I always tell people, I don't think I fully appreciated Detroit, growing up in Detroit until I left, you know, mm-hmm. and then you come back. But I remember things like I went to Guyton. There was a school over there. It's closed mm-hmm. now, unfortunately. And we had a, a black principal, Miss mm-hmm. McCrary. And I can remember seeing her as a, you know, kindergarten, first grade, in the halls, and just how she carried herself and how stately, you know, it really had an impact on me growing up in a black city that I didn't fully appreciate until I got older. Wow. Wow. And, and with that, Renaissance. Yeah. Um, and the old Renaissance. Oh, like. yes, the old building. <laughs> so, so with it, and I've interviewed some other people that have told, like I've actually interviewed people that were like, yeah, I was a part of the first class of Renaissance or the first class not of DSA. That old. Like, I know you're not, but I'm saying. But I was in the, the 80s. <laughs> the, the old Renaissance just like the old DSA, and I'm not taking anything away from the current DSA or the current Renaissance. It was um, the familial, the familial, I guess, atmosphere, environment. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was, it was, it felt different. Like, I mean, just observing even from from the from the outside in of my friends that went to Renaissance, it's like they almost knew everyone in the school. Um. Uh, the the buy-in for uh, where things would track w- would be different. Like, you know, we went to two Renaissance parties in, like, my high school <laughs> tenure or whatever, and, and immediately they like, who you here with? And I'm like, wow, this is, <laughs> this is not <laughs> this is not the usual feel. And that's where I meant, like, did you, uh, as you say that you noticed your Detroit story, did you notice by that, that Renaissance, like, how, what was your take on Renaissance? Oh, I had a great time. I loved Renaissance. Um, you're right. I mean, it was smaller. Mm-hmm. It was, and, and I think part of what you pick up on that closeness is, because you're right. Remember, when we went to Renaissance, it hadn't even been open 10 years. And so to a certain extent, we, kind of, we had to kind of be a close-knit because we were already getting that kind of flack from the other schools. You know, Renaissance. It was Renaissance. You know, first it was like, because you're not named after like all the other schools. Mm-hmm. Before they change the names, you're not named after someone. People don't understand what the what the hell does it mean, you know. And our mascot was a phoenix, you know. Then you had to explain what is, which I think has a very symbolic meaning, obviously, rising from the ashes. But so all of that, I think, meant that we were very close knit because um, we just were, we were a bit of an outlier in the DPS, and so you had Detroit Public Schools. Um, so yeah, definitely. Uh, what did you, and you say you love the experience, um, and more so like just even your uh, your peers, um, and the the faculty. Like when I hear those stories, it's like wow, this was just like a different type of like this was like Bayside High, the black version or something like <laughs> like you know what I'm saying? Like this is not, you know, as. You know, it's nothing like my Northwestern experience. Let's put it like that. Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the other thing is, and I just, um, coming from a family of educators, Ah, the the nicest thing is when you have the ability to interact with a teacher that loves what they do. 
And I think a lot of the teachers there loved what they did. And they felt, and they probably, you know, I have to think about it, I never thought about it before, but they probably felt like they were also on the cusp of doing something different because it's a whole new school yeah. that was supposed to be, you know, for our children that was, you know, focused on getting them college prep and um, all of that. So, yes, a lot of them, I think they they felt very connected to what they were doing um, and they were passionate about their work. Okay. So so from Renaissance, where do you go in your journey? Uh, U of M. Ah, so that's another classic connection. It seems like a lot of Renaissance <laughs> students go to U of M. Well, I mean, one thing I tell people, mm-hmm. uh, unfo- well, for us, it was fortunate for us. Back then, U of M was cheap mm-hmm. um, in state. And they also did on-the-site admissions. It's very, it's very anticlimactic, but it's also very nice. You know, they come there, they look at all your stuff. You're sitting in the room with the person, and then they're like, okay, welcome to U of M. I mean, it's wonderful to then be like, oh, you're in. You don't have a lot of the anxiety, or at least I didn't have a lot of the anxiety a lot of people did about waiting to hear about school. But it also felt a little anticlimactic. You know, you don't get the big letter in the mail and all of that. But I, also, I had an older sister who was already there. Okay. And it was affordable, and I didn't want to go to MSU. No yeah. offense, people, but I just <laughs> like to give them better. Yeah, it may be about 30 people, like, throwing up. I know. Well, my best there. friend went to MSU, so I was there <laughs> hanging out with her. I love her. Go green, okay? <laughs> but, uh, now you got the other half of people like, what? <laughs> she said, what? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I will say I love my people. I'm not, um, I'm not like a rabbit U of M fan. I root for every home team, but I'm not, you know, like crazy with it. <laughs> so, so and it's unique as I get in some of these discussions. Uh, my interview with Aaron Bevel and even Chase Cantrell at, at you know, U of M students that in, in Proposal 2, like it was uh, during, I'll say like late 90s, early 2000s, uh, when we think about a, a couple of things were happening under the guise of, of, of race, admissions, in the stomping grounds, and, and, you know, from the outside in, in some of U of M stance, and mm-hmm. it was a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, did, what did Ann Arbor feel like for you as a student, and what was your take as you, you know, watched all of that play out? So we're going to have to go back first because I'm early 90s. Mm-hmm. So we'll talk about when all that was playing out. It was I was later. like, mm-hmm. yep, I was later. But I, I do have some comments on that. So for me, I mean, and I mean, it was different. But it also, like you said, there's so many Detroiters who were at Michigan. You mm-hmm. really found your place. Yeah. And then for me, my other place turned out to be the Black Student Union. And so I was really active in that, became the secretary. And so our real issues were with the university. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there's lots of just trying. To, I mean, there were unfortunately still a lot of issues happening in the 80s, race issues yeah. among students and dorms with events. So a lot of the, the, the fights that we were having with the university was around their commitment to, to black students Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, recruitment, retention, all of that. Those were like a lot of issues we were having then. So, and as you speak to that, you know, uh, back to another Kari Frazier, and this may stand as a Detroit is different stage too, like many American institutions, they know many, 
all American institutions, meaning when I say institutions, I'm, I'm thinking like education, Formal. justice, mm-hmm. uh, medical, um, you know, you know, business, like finding the place and space to for for us, for, for black people. It's been a it's been a fight. You know, it, yeah. nothing. The the opportunities just with clear access are definitely opportunities you don't want access to for us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's less more less a, a, a discussion on U of M, but just more so just higher education itself. How how do you think that those strides um, that you were making then? Like, did you see some of that work with the Black Student Union as like a like a preview of where you're at now, like in learning oh, yeah. about organizing and learning about actually, you know, getting your voice heard and censoring someone outside of our culture to understand what's needed within our culture? Or did you see it as as like a fight that's like, I am in this fight because everybody else is kind of in this fight, but I don't know if we can win this fight. You know, when you're young, you don't... <sighs> That's interesting. When you're young, I don't feel like, at least I didn't, the concept of winning or losing wasn't on the thing. It just felt like the the thing you had to do. Mm. And also, I always, you know, my family always tells a story of me being young. For some reason, it was always centered on justice and mm. fairness. Um, and so the fact that it was, you know, you're seeing injustices, on a, in a, on a place where you are supposed to be welcome, it's supposed to be meant for you, where you're all paying the same, you know, kind of money. It just really kind of, at least for me, propelled me to get involved. Um, there's a clear trajectory from all of that to what I'm doing now. But, you know, at the time, I didn't see it. It was just um, y- you wanted change. At least I did. I wanted change. So, And, and I don't like to think of absolutes, but I do like to think of, like, barometers. So at that time, like if you had to put on a scale of zero to a hundred, was it like? Uh, do you think it was more ignorance and, and not knowing uh, how to engage and 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 keep engaged a lot of the black students, or was it more so neglect? Which I know it's a thin line between ignorance and neglect, but huh, that's interesting. Um... I think it may be, it may all be the same, which is, mm. um, like, so now we're getting into like um, the philosophical stuff. Like, yes. my, like philosophically where I am, I just, I just don't think there is really, I don't think there was then and I don't think there is now any real care or concern. Hmm. Um, and, and I link all of that to like capitalism. Hmm. When money is your primary Bottom focus, line. then you're not really, you don't really give a shit about people. I mean, let's just be real. And so you you care when people make you, in my opinion, mm-hmm. when you're forced. And so I don't think that it was that, like the university was really thinking about us. I don't think, yes, I don't think it was on their radar. I don't think they were back then checking the numbers of how black students or other students of color were doing or what it would be like for, you know, to having less than 10% of black people in a campus that's like 30,000 plus mm-hmm. and how you are interacting and, 
and, and there was not nearly as much conversation around the transition from coming from, you know, an urban school that had was less resource. And there wasn't as much of that talk. And there wasn't as much of that data. Um, and so there were some things they had already done. And typically they were led by black people. So there was like, you know, uh, what was it called? CSP, Comprehensive Studies Program. Which, but that, you know, we all felt like that's like remedial for us. But I mean, that was still our space because there was also additional help. I was in engineering. There was a minority engineering program office, you know. And again, so there were some, and these were all led by black educators. But I also still think we weren't, we hadn't moved to a place of connecting outcomes with history. And so a lot of times the emphasis was always on the personal responsibility. Remember, we're still, again, this is late 80s, early 90s. There's still uh, a lot of that, um, you know, uh, wanting to prove that we can compete, which we obviously could, but not understanding what it meant to come from a place that's under-resourced, what it meant to come from a family that's struggling, what, you know, all of that and what, how that's all linked to what was done in this country to black people. So we hadn't done a lot of that at that time, I don't feel. I felt like, I feel like a lot of it was more on, we got to make sure y'all come up here and ready to work, you know, mm. which I still am about, you know, being, you know, personal responsibility, but you can't minimize and all the other aspects. It, like, it's a... It's a responsibility of onboarding. Like, even with what I do with Detroit is different. We were having a short conversation about this space is a community space. So as much as I love this tech stuff, I have to keep in mind that everyone's vision isn't, they're not going to sit and watch hours of like, wow, you know, uh, Tascam yeah. just created a new, uh, you know, a new board <laughs> that I can do this with and then I can switch. Some people just want to come in here and do a show. Right. So if their onboarding is that, as the person with the space, I believe the onus and responsibility relies on me to make sure that in this community space, I have the resources at the level of who's coming in. Mm -hmm. Though it is, it, I mean, it's a relationship, it's reciprocity, right. but I also must have the resources so that this person can not feel as though they're a fish out of water. Right. Because obviously there's a difference. I mean, you know, there are the people who generally needed help and are failing out. And then there are people, yes, who did nothing and are failing out. But those are like different populations. We're sure. not going to, you know, lump them all together. So so in this, in all of this, I think, connects to even your position today. So like you were, yeah. you were, you know, college student mm -hmm. and not necessarily tying to victory, but you're in a front line pushing a discussion where now faculty um, and others, because I, I am aware just through my, my kid's sister, Mashar, that went to U of M and she went through the, like, as they say, they call it like, oh, that's the black program. But now yeah. many universities have yeah. this program where, you know, uh, maybe two, two weeks, maybe 10 days before the rest of the campus gets yep. there, mm -hmm. you have black students helping. And in my mind, I believe that some of that organizing of you all led to programs like that to exist at U of M and other schools. Like, and, and I guess the, this long question, as I can be in Kari nature, to say, like, um, do you think that when those connections are made, like now that like some of the black faculty sees the black student union working, 
they're like, okay, we need to respond to this and we need to take this discussion and move it forward beyond where the students may not necessarily be able to see the victory, but we can move this discussion forward. That's exactly how I think it should work. Mm -hmm. So in this moment, um, with a very recent protest that have been happening, and I have um, children, I have a stepdaughter, and I remember she was out, you know, in protest, and I was telling people that I don't really go to many protests anymore because I feel I have a different responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I said the same thing a couple of, uh, in 2020 with what was happening in Detroit. And I was like, our responsibility, if we are in any kind of position or some kind of influence, is to take those demands that are coming from the activists and then see how we are putting them into place and putting them into practice. So, yes, I feel like it's supposed to be a continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, and I think it is a real at least it was for me, very much a growth moment of going through um, protests and, and being more on the ground and then picking a career path and understanding how the, it's supposed to be connected and how you're, also, how you're actually supposed to get change. So now when you say, like, winning, though, I think there's a lot of... Um, I think there's a lot of elements of change. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I recently said that part of the reason I'm in this position now is I'm getting older. I've been back in Detroit 25 years, working in Detroit and living in Detroit and working in community the entire time. And it can wear on you. And I was like, in this moment, I believe it is my time to help develop new leadership. Hmm. Because I, I could see at certain, at a, my last position, a feeling I never before always felt like, you know, where's the win? But I was beginning to feel like I don't even know if the win can happen. Hmm. I believe, I always say, I believe it is worth the fight. This is our country. This is, we made all this. We are deserving of everything that it has to offer. But I also said, you know, at least for me sometimes, I don't know if this country wants to get better. Hmm. You know, when you have this kind of capitalism that has gone berserk, in my opinion, how can you really, where's your real commitment to affordable housing? Where's your real commitment to equity? Where's your real commitment to everyone being able to just, you know, afford a decent life? Mm-hmm. I don't know that it exists on, the, on a large scale, you know, I don't know. But I, I definitely think it is worth the fight, and I want to assist young leaders in, in, in their work. And, and as you... In that role, also, uh, the next question becomes, there are other players, especially when we think of Detroit, in this social justice, community mm-hmm. organizing, nonprofit world, that don't have the onboarding you have, that were never in that space of, of being an activist, that never attended a protest, that don't, you know, that never got that, you know, two o'clock phone call, two o'clock in the morning phone call about like, all right, so when we get down there, we need buses and food and they're coming from a whole other orientation of like, I was so swayed by what I saw, but now I just want to step into a position to influence change. Um, what's the difference between the person that actually was, you know, boots on the ground in that protest versus the person that feels like, you know what, I was kind of, for lack of a better term, I, I was kind of on the Uncle Tom side of the game. And I woke up when I saw when I saw that, and now I moved to advocate for my people. 
You said, what's the difference? Yes. <laughs> Obviously, this is, this is my opinion on what's the difference. Yes, definitely. Um, sadly, uh, sometimes for me, I think the difference is in how people want to approach the solution or how they think we're going to affect change. Mm. And so I'll, I'll say as an example, um, you know, for, for my generation and um, a lot of, you know, what I'd say, middle-class black professionals, what I've observed mm. is that it feels like a lot of time they're vehicle of change, their approach is that we need more black people with more money. Mm-hmm. If I'm making money, it's like, you know, black people are doing good. Yeah. Um, and I don't agree with that, that approach. I don't, I'm, not that I'm, a, I always like to say this, I'm not opposed to money, okay? I'm not going to act like I'm opposed to money. But I, I, just by black people having money does not mean that we are addressing, you know, it's not getting us to what I would say is a point of actual social justice or equity. Um, yeah, it's, I think when you, at least coming through it the way that I did, it just, it just is a, becomes, I mean, it just means, it just speaks to, it's just really like who you are as a person. I mean, everyone likes different things. Everyone's attracted to different things. I'm not saying everyone has to do the same thing. Obviously, in my family, everybody wasn't doing the same thing that I did. But I, but what I, my hope is at least that everyone, particularly in our community, because we, we have, we're such a special people. I believe that we are special people. I would at least hope that you always feel a connection to community. You know, as example, one of the examples I use all the time, and I think because it just really hit me, was during the, the issue around community benefits in this city. Mm-hmm. When I would have felt that any black person would have understood what it meant to say a development project that's going in a particular neighborhood should have to commit to providing some kind of benefit to the impacted population, that to me just seemed like an easy one. How, how, and... and and we're giving them subsidy. So let's not say that they're not just doing their own money. They're getting some tax dollars. How is that not easy one to say, yes, they should do some benefits? And the fact that there were so many black professionals who were, like, against it, honestly, almost, like, broke my heart. Wow. I was like, how are you not? How, that's not even, you know, we, we've, unfortunately, in the city, gotten in such of this narrative of, you know, the Detroit, you know, being the underdog and we got to convince everyone to come here and invest their money and do things. And I think we're moving a little bit away from that now. But at that moment, I was just like, really, y'all, come on. I mean, come on. And, and that right there is why it's funny. I'm, I'm fresh off of, you probably know my, my a, a fellow Detroit is different podcast than my, my <laughs> homie Piper. We always oh, debate yes. this. Sister Piper, yes. Because I'm not... Uh, I'm not as much of an anti-capitalist. I had the classic debate last year with uh, with Baba Malik, and some of this is definitely my orientation of That's my father my, yes, being my a CPA. Brother, Baba Malik. <laughs> oh, your father's a CPA, and oh, okay. my grandfather being a, a nightclub owner and everything. Like to me. <clears throat> And they always say, well, that's not capitalism, brother. That's not capital. I'm right. saying it's, it's a lot of jargon to me that, like, first off, 
Arne Fraser statement. <laughs> America, and I've said this before, America's a criminal enterprise. This yeah. is stolen land, stolen right. labor, and it actually was a stolen loan from Britain. That that whole Boston Pea Party was yeah. almost like, I lent you money, and, I'm and like, now I'm coming I'm back. I'm defaulting. To All right, and now you're like, guess what? I'm like, Portugal, I'm not paying. Yeah, Portugal and France just gave me some weapons, so right. we ain't paying nothing. Right. And we're going to take that tea, and we're going to throw it over the, you, you know what I'm saying? Tell you what so, we think about you. And now we're going to turn around and say, hey, here go the Constitution. <laughs> you know? We're not even part of y'all anymore. So, so when we say that it's capitalism, when so much is subsidized, Meaning, like, in, in subsidies or millages, basically, our tax money is building, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, um, when I was talking to Theo Pride, Detroit People's Platform, our tax money built Little Caesars Arena. I don't know if people recognize this. Yes. Little Caesars right now is the biggest pizza corporation across the world. If you travel the world, you're going to see more. Uh, you wonder why you're not seeing, well, we know why we ain't seeing Papa John's commercials, but you know why you're not seeing Pizza Hut commercials anymore? Because Little Caesars has taking over the pizza industry. That world headquarters and all of that stuff, they're all across the world right now. So we have the largest, and we know how much the world, especially Americans, love pizza. They have the money to buy their own. Here's another one that I always throw out. Um, Yeah, and that was one of the projects that catalyzed people's activism. And to this day, I've not set foot in there. I've never been to Little Caesar Arena because it was wrong. It was wrong. the, The other one, and it's layers even to that, like, it blew people's mind. Like, when I told them, I was like, you know, when you when we found out in the quote-unquote build of Little Caesars Arena, we found out that Joe Louis Arena didn't pay a DTE bill for six years. But the reality is, like I say, if 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 uh, the, the as you say, the Detroiter we want to welcome want to come down for a hockey game, you, you, you're not going to turn the lights off on them. But right. Detroit is different. Lights will get cut off. Right. <laughs> we'll cut off if I try to go six months without paying, right? Let alone six years. Right. So that's the brazenness to me of the gangsterism of what we call capitalism. Because if you and me want to do business, supply Exa- got to meet demand. We got to get yes. resources. We have to, we have to function more by the book of what they say. The one premise that I do say uh, from all my business training, like I always say, is. Capitalism says you have to enlist scarcity, which I don't believe scarcity is built. I think scarcity is created to push people with an urgency to buy, especially in this real estate industry. That that may oh my goodness. I mean, of it's course, like, it's a business tactic. Yeah, and I don't know why people people hate. I mentioned it to some small business. Shout out my small business owner. I used to be a small business owner. Obviously, I love small business owners. But I I wasn't happy with, you know, this whole thing of, you know, it's a tactic. I was joking my daughter. I was like, I'm not going to wait in line, you know, a long-ass line to get a pie. I can make my own. But but, But also, and I... Put that on somebody's little social media. Like, I get it. You only make, make certain. It, it it drives up the demand. People want to feel like I gotta wait in that line because yeah. I gotta get this pie because it's about to be sold out. Yeah. And I'm not mad at you, but please let's be honest about it. It's a tactic yeah, because you, you could uh, you could probably make more pie than that. Yeah. I know. I've been there. Like right now, as <laughs> as the Fed is raising interest rates, <laughs> and we're clearly seeing that the market is crashing before our eyes soon. If you meet a realtor right now, they're going to say, no, nah, man, this is the best time to buy. Like, you you will never meet a realtor that says, you know what? You may want to sit around, save up a little bit more money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then buy a house. <laughs> exactly. And I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tell you the, the one example I use 
that's my biggest frustration with capitalism. Mm -hmm. I got to go to this program, one of the Harvard nonprofit programs, and this one data piece always stayed with me. They showed us a map, excuse me, a graph of the difference between the employees and the owners, the employers, like back from like in the 70s. Back then, like the difference, I'm holding my thing, I'm on camera, that's right. It was like this. I know. it's like this. The wealth to it's sickening. Yes, the wealth, the, the wealth poverty gap is so. The disparity has gone up. Like, okay, it went up. First off, Reagan era went up maybe fourfold. Then you have the second Bush. It went up maybe eightfold on top of that. Even during Barack Obama, it went up like another twofold. Under Trump, it went up like threefold. Right now, under President Biden, like it the. The disparity is at a way where, you know, like it's it's almost laughable when they say the the middle class versus the non-middle class, because just due to our propensity, here's another economic term. Propensity means basically <laughs> your how fast that, you know, oh, OK, the old school when my mom say money bowling, burning a hole in your pocket. Our <laughs> propensity to spend due to our conditioning and where things are at is so fast that even if you give. You know, the whole thought process, even the whole, quote unquote, yeah, we're going to give a stimulus. I mean, right, it was already right. known that, like, if you give Americans, every right. American gets $2,000, it will be back in the market within maybe like a day and a half. People were spending a stimulus check just knowing that it's going to come what they Which is what they wanted to do. Yes. Which is what they wanted. And, and, yes. and the, the disparity is astronomical. But the mm-hmm. sad part mm-hmm. is that you keep people thinking that if they just worked harder, they could get up to that top level. And that's a fallacy. Cardi story time. <laughs> it's, it's just, and, and that's the sad part. That's the, that's the piece of capitalism that is sad to me and disgusting. Cardi so. uh, story time. Comedian Patrice O'Neill always joked about this, of saying, like, most Americans, like, it's almost like this is back to the conditioning and propaganda, I'm being a media and stuff, of America. Like, every American in the back of their mind thinks, I'm going to be a millionaire. Of course. So I would rather have these programs yep. that will help a millionaire because one day I'm going to be on top of that hill. But it's, I mean, here's the story time for me. I was going, I started at Henry Ford Community College and I, you know, always taking these business classes. But even an introduction to business at Henry Ford Community College of, of my class of 35 people. Uh, 25 of them all saw themselves as millionaire, and of the 25, 18 of them wanted to own a bar or restaurant, which if you know anything about business, those are the businesses that have the highest rate of failure Yes. within one to three years. Yep. But everyone in the class is like, no, nah, but you know, the way I do my ribs and the way I got my sauce and the way I do this, and this is the other thing of onboarding, as I tell a lot of people, they don't like When I say this, I'm like, you're thinking as a consumer and you're not thinking as a business owner because you're saying how good the product is. The the leverage, and this is another offshoot, another economic term, externality. Externality is basically something external that you don't expect to happen connected Mm -hmm. to business. But an externality of business, like the hot and ready $5 pizza, is that the best way to profit is to work your margins better. Meaning like you can have the best, uh, you could, I mean, we all are aware that The hot and ready pizza is not the best pizza, but the margins that they make on whatever tomatoes, dough, and cheese are such great margins that they put a lot of the competition out of business because it's like almost like, okay, is this Pizza Popolo's pizza better than a a Little Caesar's pizza? Yes. Pizza Popolo's wants $20 for a pizza. 
Little Caesars want $5. And now we're saying value. So it's like, I would rather, it's not $15 better, though I know it's better. But they figure out a way to have to yes. put it all together. Yes. They maximize, like you said, on their margins. Yes. And they spoke to some a concept that we've bought into, which is we want everything yesterday. Instantaneous. Exactly. Hot and, and ready. So, right. You know, even if it's crap. You yeah. know, Hot and ready <laughs> and marginal. Right. It's, so, it's better than as long it, as it's exactly. supposed to probably really it, take the cook and be good. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they figured it out. But that's, that's yeah. the thing. That's a part of the business is is figuring out how to capitalize on the American culture. Yes. And and, and we've been assimilated and conditioned, because I'm big into that. Like, I like marketing. I like how people perceive messages. Even how things are framed, I find fascinating. Like, if you watch a movie or different things with yeah. me, like, I can get real nerdy even about the way words are placed around different things. Because this all has to do with even where we're at now, where I want to drive into this Detroit story and that Detroit narrative of, of, of first off, the, what happened to our housing stock of Detroit? Because it's a couple of different iterations, especially in a community like mine, where we had the... And, and then one person may say, well, the correlation makes sense. But even per capita, meaning that Black home ownership per capita in Detroit from the 60s through, you know, maybe like the the late 90s, mm-hmm. even like early 2000s, was so vast versus any other place. But then slowly but surely, a lot of my elder neighbors kept receiving from some of them, a lot of them actually from the, the, the richest man in the state, quote unquote, business refinancing options so a lot of people hawk their house as they say in the streets meaning you take money out you know a lot of grandparents are thinking you know oh this is a good rate we lock you in and you know you can get you know sixty thousand dollars and like you know a grandma or grandpa is thinking like you know i give ten thousand to the kids Mm -hmm. i can fix these windows get them you know get them up to par and and in this whole world where they know they would jam you and so many people lost their homes in my community connected to the refinancing of it. So, like, when you don't tell that part of the story, hence the culprit that led to why my community looks the way it looks, you're really leaving out the conditions of what happens to a community like mine. And you're in this whole space. So the housing stock of Detroit, which these rich homes, and you speak about the neighborhood you grew up in, and in mm-hmm. so many of these refinancing options. And then this is the sickness also of, as you say, the system of America, that there is no consequence for these bankers, these mortgage, these lending companies, these, the people that tore apart communities like mine, like yours. No, no, there's not. Yeah, I, mean, just, I was just sitting here just as you're talking, reflecting on there's so many different aspects. I mean, there's so many different parts, not aspects, parts of that story. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where I always say I'm not a historian, but you have to understand the history to even get up to that part of mm-hmm. the story. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise, I feel then you, you, you have it wrong. Yes. And and you're right there. Um, you know, that story just of the, the mortgage issue and the predatory lending, um, mm-hmm. it does. It, it plays into the fact of, of, of having a population that you knew you could easily target. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it plays into our feelings about what we wanted to do as, you know, what you want to do as family or parents, like you said, yeah. for for others or, or um, plays into the, the fact, at least when you're looking at Detroit, uh, how you redlined and concentrated poverty in a city that had one industry that changed so dramatically that left thousands, you know, without this place. Exactly. And without any work. And and then what does it mean and and and, and how people, you know, had to leave or jump ship or, or all this vacancy. I mean there's like all this different mm-hmm. pieces of it that um many of which is very tragic. Very. And and in a community like mine, and I recognize a lot of my perspective of this deals with my family background. Um you know, what I've been exposed to. So I see things differently. So in a community like mine, I love being over here. It's I find my peace over here. It's deep. But I do recognize a lot of my neighbors feel trapped over here mm-hmm. um, because their orientation here and how they center themselves and even what they look at as success or, or, or mm-hmm. what a good place is, it's completely different. Uh, so, so that that brings the, the, the next discussion. You, you talked about development. We're, we're facing something currently right now. When I say facing something, my community, we were sued by a development that's just sprung up. Uh, it began build this past summer. And with it, you know, and I'm learning more about it and talking to more neighbors, uh, the properties, and this is so unique, were labeled as it was like brownfield, as you talk about subsidies, brownfield money. So it's government money going into this project that they're building across the freeways, but in this footprint, they want to break some of the community benefits agreement of the CDC over here, Hope Village Revitalization. And also they want to break, they sued myself and maybe about 150, maybe about 200 other residents to break deed restrictions. So when you when you see stuff like this, on one hand, my neighbors are like, you know, like one of my neighbors, uh, uh, an elder woman, she she had a stroke when she, you know, she never got sued in her life. So, you know, you get served. They are suing you all to do what? For they what? want to break the deed restriction. What's the what's the deed restriction that exists? <laughs> so the deed restriction that exists, and we're definitely going more scientific. And I'm sorry. And no, I'm no, just, but I like you know, it. The I'm deed restriction lawyer, is so they want to change the alley easement. And to me, I look at this as like, I, I love sports. So to me, this is like a jab. If they break the alley easement, the thought process is now they can, uh, they're like, you know, they say, well, you will be able to own more of your alleys, but then we can travel through your alleys better and it'll be more clean. This is the way they package it and sell it. But also, I think the lawsuit was an act one in the whole thing to just see how, how, how what's the, as you say, what is the consciousness of the, of the neighborhood itself? Because if we can, if we see that, and most most defaulted, I didn't, but it, it, but I'm still collective with my people as we document this. But a lot of those lawsuits default, you know, and you you rezone this and you make it more industrialized. You make this you make this space in my community as by being now a brownfield. And I've been talking about this more. It's like it reassesses my property value. And a person may say, well, if you don't want to sell your house, car, why does your property value matter? Because I got to insure this stuff. It impacts my insurance, which impacts my car insurance. So now I went from a residential community to a residential slash industrial community. Like all because one development that enters into my community with tax money and they use the Highland Park address side. And that was savvy, too, because, you know, Highland Park's documentation and um, and transparency when it comes to their uh, Brownfield Fund, which started with this development, and even their economic development um, wing is is consultant 
Mr. Tyrone Hinton. So it's it's not as transparent as if they went with the Detroit address side. Like this was a savvy move. Did Hope Village help you all help the residents in any of that? Like did any did any attorney come in and represent? We're still in the act of it. And I said, you know, I'm as I'm sit, you know, definitely partnered with Hope Village on, on the board, know a lot of the people. But even with Hope Village was sued because the community benefits agreement, even in breaking that, the the what they're saying is Hope the community benefits uh, ordinance in this space was um, warehousing alcohol and warehousing explosives. They're saying the explosives will just be for fireworks, but that still makes us feel like, okay, this is in the middle of Highland Park in the hood. Y'all can have all types of weapons going into Ukraine over there or something like that if you clear this. So like the rezoning and the breaking of deed restrictions changes everything in our community moving forward for a lot of us as residents. Are you reporting on this? Yeah, I'm I'm putting a lot I'm actually going to release with your with with this interview this this week. I'm going to put up a lot of the pieces. We've done some community meetings, we're going to do some more community meetings specific to this um it's one resident that actually kept his home and it's weird they built around his home and they're tearing down the street sign like every other week and stuff is it this is i mean something just, that i didn't expect what corporate i mean so does your i'm sorry i'm asking all these questions i'm this is just me I'm and my I'm, I'm capacity of work is your city council person involved in this not yet. I do have a relationship with uh, Council Member Callaway's office. I let her know, and and I mean, I think she's more responsive than our my, my former council member. But even with the the amount of things laying at her desk, and I've sent her some more information. I think once I package this story in the videos, I will send to her. But this is also a Detroit and Highland Park matter, so I'm gonna send this and get this message going in a couple different ways. And what about the department? And the, I would say the Department of Neighborhoods too. And I'm only saying that and asking because what a way of acting in bad faith as a, a corporate, you know, supposedly a corporate entity that is should be viewing themselves as a part of the community. To, I mean, if, if it was just about wanting to use, wanting some access to the right-of-way, that could have easily been done without a lawsuit. It could have easily been done in some kind of engagement with the community. But you're right. It, it feels like it is hiding the fact that they really just want to take it all. I, or or do something, yes. Well, they, they, it's, like I say, I love sports. It's like an analogy. Like I always say, like sometimes in boxing, you know, a boxer will throw a jab, not to land the jab, but just to see how you respond. To me, the lawsuit was a jab. So in, in getting more, uh, now you're the interviewer and I'm the interviewee. <laughs> so this, this project is layered because this project originally was um, one of the few, as I say, like looked at superstars in development, uh, and he was a brother. So Eric Means was leading this project before he passed away. I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Means. Eric Means was a big party, a part of a couple different apartment developments, but the Garden Theater may be more of what people kind of connect the okay. Means group to. I mean, when he passed, I mean, you get a letter statement from Mayor Duggan. I want to say Lieutenant Governor. You get uh, Brendan Jones. Like, a lot of people spoke to him. He was the black face, in my mind, of this full development. So uh, he passes away. Uh, leading up to this, a lot of agreements were met between uh, mis that Mr. Means setting in place with his business 
And he, you know, found new housing for many of the residents in that footprint in and around actually, you know, Greater St. Matthew Baptist Church, like LaBelle and Grand and these streets. So when he passed, a lot of players to me that probably were the big money in this in these deals didn't just sit on this. They said his wife. I mean, well, they said the crane story is written with his wife is now engaged to move forward with this development. His wife, that uh, that also is like a communications um, manager at Henry Ford Health Systems, I believe, though, I, you know, I, I think is being used as the black face to be in the black community, and this is Kari opinion, on this because to, to transition, to, to keep a nine-to-five job and also manage like a you know, hundred million dollar plus development, I think is very, I I don't, I don't see that, especially people like us being like, all right, hold on, let's do the Zoom meeting at six o'clock when I get home. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think that's moving forward. So you have Collier's group, you have Ashley Capital, you have a couple other developers in this whole matter that move forward in my way. I think that their way of saying this is like, let's just sue everybody. And in this suit, actually, the city of Detroit, city of Highland Park, uh, Comcast or Xfinity, AT&T, DTE, other players are also in this lawsuit as well. They're named as plaintiffs. We're all. Okay. So, I, but I think this is all in the in a in a way of like uh, you know we're we're so used to hearing things like um, you know eminent domain, but we can displace you in new ways by like basically it's like if we as a city function they don't get to. <laughs> I, I look at it, but it, it's a way that these it, you know these business, government, partnerships and entities come together in new creative ways to still attain the goal of where their victory still lies and and by basically suppressing your value to a certain point you're going to get less city services you're going to get less value right and making you want to leave which is which is which helps them but i don't want to derail send me i'll send you a lot i'm I'm very interested in this one because i hadn't heard about it Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, please send me that. And it fits under like their brownfield money is Detroit People's Platform. Shout out to them. Of it course. fits well, under Linda the Campbell is my mentor. I just <laughs> adore her. So yes, it's like right. They're like almost like right at the dollars where all of it does not need to be reported. Uh, so that was savvy too. Of course, well, of course. You know, everybody's like, going, what? Okay, I think so. You're but to interview. I mean, what this is want? a good. I mean, I, I I like that you're present for this. So, like, when games like this are being played with community, and I'm a little bit different for the people I know, and I'm interviewing people and engaging and bringing people like you to the studio, I can, I'm functioning through this differently than, like, you know, my neighbor that had a stroke. Right, but right, when things right. like this happen to communities like this, you know, how, I, your opinion, how does that, what does that do for the psyche of a lot of us when things like this happen. Well, it's horrible. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, part of what you're seeing me ask these questions is I can imagine, I would always say to people, if you imagine everyday average Detroiter, they have enough shit to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it could be, you know, their children, their parents, their job, their marriage, whatever. I mean, just like you said, what's going on in their neighborhood. And then to hear that you're being sued by a corporation, I mean, how scary could that be? 
you uh, first of all being sued that's why i'm just i'm kind of incredulous about this being sued for something you have not done but by the mere fact of your of your home is sickening to me mm-hmm. it is so distasteful because who is going to go out and invest any of their own resources to find to to, to respond to Good it representation exactly so my thing is the first thing as a resident that's why i'm asking like you should be able to contact the department of neighborhoods or your city council person to at least minimally get some understanding of, of what does this even mean why why should you have to go out and and you know invest some resources to defend something like that that's why it's so disgusting and reprehensible in my opinion and then the other piece of it is if they are already and i again as i said somebody who was a, I had a business we believed in being a good corporate citizen if they are already supposed to be a good corporate citizen, why aren't they working with Hope Village? Why aren't they trying to have some kind of community engagement to facilitate something? You know, as you said, a lot of times it's the way you come with it. You're right. Maybe a lot of your neighbors would be ready to go. Maybe if you paid them fairly, they'd be like, yeah, you can have it. But to sue someone? Uh, like that's why I said the whole thing it's it just reeks of bad faith in my opinion as a lawyer yeah. I, so. and, and 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 that's so the 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 presentation first off we met at the Just League conference New Detroit and yeah. I was taking pictures I was bouncing around in different rooms and I had to stop for a second as I said I got like a picture where it's like you you definitely looking like you were dressing it's like it's like wow it's like that's that's LinkedIn ready but with that You're with ready. that being said. Um, in the, in this space of informing people about some of these housing crises, what what's the usual response when you go to give presentations like that at like a new at a Just League conference and other spaces, and you're presenting this information to groups of people? Well, and, well, yeah, you know, it's so interesting. If I'm in Detroit, mm-hmm. obviously it's a, a warm response because I, you know, I refer to myself as a daughter of Detroit. I love my city, and so I'm usually trying to speak on things that are impacting our, our people. If I'm in other places outside the city, sadly, sometimes it's um, met with, like, you know, people are incredulous. Like, that these kinds of things are going on or it's happening or that uh, there's not enough attention to it or, or people don't know. Um, but I think we got a lot of that from Detroit. Detroit is um, a really unique place in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And so I, everywhere I go, people are like fascinated to hear about it and, and mm-hmm. about the work. Yeah, and we need to leverage it better for ourselves as always, but um, the other piece of it that I'm, I'm very sensitive to, and I would always say this, particularly getting back to like the comment I met about my peers and feeling like they weren't connected to the issue I talk a lot about the understanding I have where of like you kind of ask like why aren't more people involved? Why don't more people get involved or, or want to understand? And I try to understand that and I used to I think I made a joke with Linda about that. I was like, you know, a lot of the activists they don't make it look fun. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's it's and people and and which is, you know, it's hard ass work. Mm-hmm. But I also always say I want us people to reflect the balance. You know, I have children. I like, I don't, our children should have the ability and the, the privilege to be children. Mm-hmm. 
And so we have to figure out how to balance it because you could be overwhelmed every day with something that's going on. Yeah. Because there is something going on all mm -hmm. the time. But I also recognize for, you know, one, if we want to get more people engaged, they have to understand how to get engaged, too. But two, for those who are out here doing the work on our behalf, we have to help them have some balance because I'm like, we, we can't, people are killing themselves working for others. And I always say, I never believed in the nonprofit martyr. I don't want people to, you know, martyr themselves for the cause. It is, it, you know, I respect it and I appreciate it and I love it, but damn it, we should be able to enjoy life too. And, and, and that's where, you know, I feel like sometimes I, you know, I talk a lot about that in my work too, is that, you know, I want to get to that point of, of understanding how we help people do that better. I have mm -hmm. another wonderful mentor. Shout out to Dr. Gloria House, Mama oh, Nell. Oh, Mama Nell. That's my big homie. <laughs> huh? We got a lot of, that's my big homie. Yes, she's amazing. And I will never forget, she was, you know, that book that a, a collective of them did. And it was actually an event that Linda held. And it was, you know, the Plowshares to mm -hmm. book. And someone asked the question, just a, a young woman, about just feeling like she just didn't have the time to do as much as she wanted to, to get involved. You know, she had young children. She was trying to do this or go to school. And Mama Neb was just so gracious and beautiful in the way she said, what you're doing is a part of this work. What you're doing is contributing to it. You don't have to feel like you're all, you have to be doing everything. And it just, I think for so many of us, at least for me, to hear someone like her say that really helped. Because I think that's also the challenge of always feeling like there is so much to do, you can't do it all. And we have to figure out some ways to have balance so that people also can enjoy this life. Life is short, it goes by fast. I like that. So, so in that, and, and I like that you, you, you framed it in that reference because it, there, it is so much. You know, you you oh, can yeah. get in where you can have a defeatist attitude, mm -hmm. or you feeling like, wow, I got twelve disciples with me, but I think all of them about to stab me in the back and everything. And it's like, <laughs> hey, I'm not, I'm not about to carry my crew. You know, I'm not gonna carry my cross to my own crucifixion. Like, so, like you have to, I, I, I think that enjoying it in the quality of life and that's where like I love Detroit is different and I always tell people hey this is a platform and I'm, I'm telling you right now and not just for Sarita but even you watching it's an open platform I want people to share those stories I think the richness you know some of sometimes it'll get many views sometimes it may not get any but I do think it's an evergreen record that will exist and then sometimes people can go back it's unique sometimes when I see that in a Detroit is different interview what's quoted you know what I'm saying that's and it's like wow that's interesting you know what I'm saying but this is my tool that I'm most passionate about and where I'm natural because that is another thing that can happen because a person sometimes people will say well, no, you know, uh, running the daycare for the kids while we at the protest really ain't the real work. And it's like, no, everyone plays that role. Exactly. Hence, this is the, I don't even think it's capitalism, but whatever. This system, the, the I believe we all have roles in villages. And I know that yes. uh, in a lot of ways, I think some of the African experiences romanticized amongst my Afro, Afrocentric uh, African-centered thinking, but you know what? We can't romanticize it because that's our story. Let's romanticize it. But I do think that the person that built the hut 
versus the person that went out to, I mean, the person that built the home, the person that went out and hunted, the person that cooked the food, the drummer, the medicine woman, the, 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 the griot, the storyteller, like everyone played the same role. Like it, it wasn't like, well, you know, he the person that's the hut builder. So in reality, you know, he kind of deserved to have more food than, you know, the, the person that's out here teaching the kids. Like, no, it wasn't. It was a communal thinking, abundance thinking, not scarcity. Which scarcity pushes a lot of this stuff. But in that abundance thinking like this, I, I believe it has a, a role in, in, in me personally. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Like if, you know, sometimes I'm doing better. In the things that I do, I'm not one of those people that's like, you know, if the person across the street from me has to pay a dollar for car insurance because that's what's equitable and fair, I don't care. I don't walk outside and say, yeah. well, he paying a dollar. Why I got to pay $150 a month? Like, I, I don't think a lot of our community functions like that. That's not what culturally we connect with. Right. No, you're right. And I, I agree with that as well. I've always said that. We need everyone. Everyone has to figure out their role and what's for them. You know, I always go back to when I was a, a young attorney and, and moved back here. I hooked up with the National Conference of Black Lawyers. Shout out to NCBL. Ah. That is the, the legal arm of the movement. Yeah. <laughs> just connected that. to all. I don't even know how we didn't, like, because <laughs> Chokwe Lumumba is another one. Oh, yes. He was like the massive big homie. Of big homies before he passed, he'd be like, yes. you know, I'd be on the phone with him, like, he'd hear my wild radical theories, and he'd be like, well, brother Kari, you gotta. <laughs> oh, wonderful, yes, wonderful. I remember, yes, he and him and Jeff Edison oh. reflect on their work. Coolest person just, in America. Oh, of course. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Brother Jeff. Um, so, but my point. So when I, but when I was with them, you know, most of them were defense attorneys. Yes. And I was not, and mm. it was a struggle for me because it just didn't align with my passion mm -hmm. and I was just so glad when I found my way to use my skills and furtherance of our people and and understanding that I if I couldn't do that it was okay yeah. and I and you're right and and that's why I always say everybody has to figure out what's for them but back to my earlier comment about you know the community benefits but my hope is that you just all feel connected to us as community and that you are working and living in your passion in a way that is about, you know, all of us moving forward. So, And, and I feel that it, because it's, it's disorienting for other cultures, like, and this, these are the why, quote unquote, being in the room, but not just being in the room, but also being able to to translate it for our community is so important. Like I, the, another analogy, I always say, like, if you walked into a... Um, if you walked into a, a job interview and I was like, all right, hit the electric slide and I play my eyes don't cry no more. I think a lot of black <laughs> folks would be like, for real? You know, and then a white person would be like, what, what is this? This is. But that feeling is usually the fit like the, the premise of it. Um, you know, and, and, and I like a couple people. I like a lot of, you know, I've had some interesting exchanges, but like it's like the, almost everything. And I'm into, like I say, messaging, pageantry, uh, propaganda, like all of the pieces I, I was going to, and I'm sure you've probably been down there a bunch of times, and, and I like Derek and a couple of other people there, but I was going to one a meeting with um, at Invest Detroit one time, and they were talking mm -hmm. about empowering Detroit neighborhoods. Right now, I think they just got like $300 million <laughs> from Bank of America, too. And I was telling them, I was like, and it was weird. I was giving a critique to the group. I was like, me even having to go through 
like three security checkpoints and then come up an elevator to like the whatever floor and look yeah. down on the city. This is so disorienting for me to even begin to speak about what my community, what would be empowering for my community that I already kind of have a toxic shock. It'd be like bringing, you know, that Bank of America $300 million investor into, you know, into like a horseshoe game over here. You know what I'm saying? Right. Where where pit where a couple pit bulls that, you know, ain't leashed just walking around. You know what I'm saying? And then saying like, all right, man, so you know what I'm saying? Uh, let's get that $300 million check. But, I, 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 but I'm saying like... It's even the spaces and places and how we present things. Hence, some of us that can translate, I agree with you. Some of the onus falls on us, but it also is the cultural competency of making it plain for where things need to be. Because a lot of this stuff, if 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 you're willing to actually come and meet with us, which is more social capital, mm-hmm. and yeah, you may get you may you may hear some choice words, you may get taught a not a child of God, but that's the start of it. But that's the rhythm and the flow, and then eventually from that rhythm and flow we get to an understanding because that's that's what we do in our community at least in my you know i know over here in my hood it's all types of stuff that sometimes is like out of ordinary but i know how to respond and engage and my, i would never think to sue my neighbor my thought process is like i have to right. communicate with them i have to talk to them i have to right you know engage differently and meet under our cultural competency where that's where it does feel neglectful it feels it feels dismissive of even how we're doing because we even to to get a victory, quote unquote, right. from their world, we have to walk into their world, translate it for them, and then come back to our world and translate it back to us as well. You know, when in reality, it's like it's a way to get both parties together, especially if you want to engage with us. And if not, just leave us alone and let us do what we do. If it's not genuine, yes. I, I mean... You know, I've been hearing a lot of people say recently, change happens at the pace of relationships. Mm. I don't think a lot of people like that because you're right. The time it takes to actually meet and engage and understand with people. And that's where the imbalance of power comes in. Yeah. Because with the with the money and the power, you're feeling like I don't have to wait on you. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where at least in some of our work, my work, we've been trying to say, but even if you don't, even if, because I would always say, I'm sorry, you can't, at this age, you cannot convince me of the goodness of people. Like, everybody just wants to do the right thing because we know it's not true. Everybody yeah. don't want to just do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, that the right thing would be to come together and to have that kind of thing. But if you don't want to do the right thing, I'm at least going to try and press upon you that not doing the right thing is going to be more, you know, less profitable for you. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a problematic for you. Yes. So if you're not doing it for the right thing, I'm at least convinced you that you need to do it for, you know, what your interest is. Mm-hmm. And that's where I don't think they 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 don't want to do it for the right reason. Or maybe they don't know. We can be, we'll say maybe they don't know. And that's another way that we've tried to help them understand. But if they don't want to do it for that, then we at least have to impress upon them um how to do it and what what makes sense even on the business case of it because I just don't I don't think people really care I think Mm. a lot of it you know there's like people do enough in the moment particularly in this moment enough to say they've done it you know doesn't necessarily mean it's real doesn't necessarily mean it's genuine so in in closing um, 
I'm gonna have my classic Detroit is different questions in a second. But before those, the the work now. What do you see? What do you see next? in housing residency for Detroit? What, what, you know, and I know that's a big question, but you know, what, what do you look for? And, and, and then furthermore, if you're, I guess, if you're that legacy Detroiter, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, how should our eyes be on the swivel of what's to come? Let me do that part first. That's easier. If you're a legacy Detroiter, and what you should be focused on is one, if you want to stay in Detroit, keep your home. Mm-hmm. If you want to leave, make sure you are getting appropriate value for your home. Um, I think the, and if you want to just, and if you want to just be involved in your community and you're concerned about displacement or gentrification, get involved in some of the community groups that are working to do community planning around so that you have a say in what's going to happen. I feel like that's kind of the pushback. Um, you know, what I said Saturday is, and I, what I said at the Just Lead panel is all pretty sim- similar because the issue of housing is so huge right now. Yeah. And, and somebody always preface by saying, I'm not a housing expert, I'm not a developer. This is all through community development and learning and observing and working on this stuff. And I feel like it has to be, I keep using the same analogy because I just loved it so much. Um, Shout out to the brother who said it. I can't remember your name, but he said there's no silver bullet. He's like, it's silver buckshot. We have to have multiple approaches to it. And that's the, the real truth of housing. I like it. Because... From all the stuff I've learned, we we know we are in this moment particularly where there's all these challenges to housing. There's the challenge of the costs of it, the interests of developers, the subsidy needed, you know, all of that. Uh, and, And the pushback that we need to do as residents to say, we need you leadership planning for our neighborhoods, not just planning for a particular population that you think you want to attract because they'll have more money. And, you know, we need, that's the kind of thing we need. So, you know, we need to support community development organizations. They are not private developers. They are not trying to make a huge profit. So they have the strong interest in doing affordable housing like they did before, but they need the support. They need the money to keep their roofs up. They need the capacity building. They need all of that. We need to do more of that. That's some of um, what that, when you mentioned like Invest Detroit, Mm -hmm. some of what we try to work with them, and they are doing much more of that. But that's, again, always comes from the the residents saying, this is what we need. We need to continue that. I said we need to continue the advocacy. We have got to demand that we need, you know, I always shout out to to Arthur, who used to run the... um, uh, you know, we used to be here in, in Detroit running first housing and then, you know, everything else because we would always, I appreciate the way he would listen. I would always be like, Arthur, we need housing that supports the 30% AMI population. We know that Detroiters, we have high poverty in Detroit. Very much so. And so you can't be talking about 80%, you know, AMI, you know, area median income is going to be affordable. That's not affordable. No. And so... <laughs> Also, also, I mean, the uh, another, you know, it, a, a mix of two things. I, I just want to add this point into it. 
though it'll definitely be like a long Cardi soliloquy of like what Theo presented that the average the average salary annual income of a Detroiter is eighty five thousand dollars. So when you hear that, you're like, what the hell are you talking about? But the reality is the person working in Detroit don't live in Detroit. So the person living in Detroit. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, because I was gonna say that's high. That's making, not the that's not the average income. You said the average it, salary. Yeah, exactly. But we, but when if you work outside Detroit, and yeah. you and you commute into Detroit, and actually get up on your information. Go go back watch my interview when I interviewed Anthony Adams, and that's really a lot of the revenue mm. sharing from Michigan because at one point in time, the the deal, and this is why. Detroit never should have gone and accepted that false bankruptcy. But this is the 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 deal was Detroit always had had a tax on if you work in Detroit and you live outside Detroit. Right. Those rates were cut in half in exchange for the revenue sharing of the state of Michigan giving Detroit their fair ter- share. Right. And that's something that our current executive administration does not go after and no executive administration has gone after the way it needs to have been gone after because Mayor Archer at the time, his first administration, I think we're going to probably end up in another Mayor Archer administration eventually, but oh, he never pursued that, <laughs> right? So because you, you, you forego on an agreement of the revenue sharing, we have all these outsiders using Detroit as leverage right. and profiting from it and moving their tax base to Troy, Novi, Livonia, Warren, mm-hmm. places that ain't Detroit. So we, so basically in that exchange, we're yeah. not getting what's owed to us. Yep. So when, when you have that, that becomes a problem. The other big problem is I help my aunt, 80-something-year-old aunt, you know what I'm saying, sell a house and buy a house. So in this uh, whole process of selling the house and buying the new house, I learned... One of the key things is people appraising properties. Let's say appraisals, yeah. The appraisal process and the amount of appraisers that look like us, few and damn near don't exist. So the whole appraisal process itself, you know, your appraisers driving down from, you know, where Farmington Hills. Shout out to my girl Keely. She's an appraiser. Yes, I know. Very few. You know Very what I'm few. saying? Like, I do. so like, so when you get these appraisers that are only appraising properties based on saying like, well, you know, the valuation basically going on Zillow saying, well, like this exactly. sold for that and what they can define as communities and neighborhoods and where things go and and you find out all of this stuff like, damn, I didn't even know that this was a was a was a village or, or whatever a subdivision or whatever this stuff is on paper and how these uh, these communities are appraised god forbid something like like the brownfield pop up in your neighborhood that you didn't know and it's still shocking as i said i was like damn they labeled they labeled this as a as a, as a distraught you can't build anything district so the government got to put money in when it was clearly a house there last last month Wow. You know what I'm saying? So it's things like this that can affect things. So hence, we need our own. As far as I'm concerned, this is the Kari thinking. We can do everything on our own. That we there we need to reject their systems, and their systems still rely on us. It's so much CFDI money, basically other government money of being in poverty that are infused in all these banks. You know they'll put First Independence Bank first, but I'm talking about Chase, Bank of America, PNC, uh, whatever they're naming. Cobo Hall, whatever that bank. TCF. Yeah, TCF. (laughs) You know, honey, like these banks have leveraged this whole quote unquote, like, look at this. 
this city is just a bombed out and depleted right, uh, right. whatever so the government you gotta give us money for this that's the narrative and you don't even mm-hmm. know that you know then they'll turn around and you know what I'm saying uh, you know have a pizza party for, for kids in the neighborhood and say like hey you know we give back it's like no you're not giving back yeah. that money was mm-hmm. our money that was our tax money you yeah. needed our tax money you yes. know, and, and I mean, another radical Detroit idea, like I always say, Kari idea is like, I really wish Detroit could be like uh, Washington, D.C. and become a district of its own because this state is Wyoming or Montana if you take away Detroit. Nobody cares about, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, I got homies outside of this, but it's not in the same leverage, but they're leveraging the value of Detroit to pull in their dollars and then throw us some pennies off of the off the side of the road, which right. is not all about money, but it becomes about money when you're exploiting what I got to get mm-hmm. your resources. Right. And and my people are in a condition where we feel like we're in a rock and a hard place, not even recognizing that you're this is a trillion dollar industry connecting to exploiting us as citizens and mm-hmm. residents. And like you say, you got other stuff. You got work, you got kids, you got, you know, that's, family, you got other stuff. You it. can't really focus on all this stuff. Right. And that's how they do it. Yeah. And that's how it's done. Yeah. So so I, I we're definitely gonna get you back. But classic <laughs> Detroit is different questions. Nah, and I, I like this. This is <laughs> it's like when the role reverse is always cool. Um classic Detroit is different question. First car, you're making model. First car. And when did you get it? Oh, come on. Um eighty five Toyota Cressida, my father. He actually shipped it to me. I was in law school. Wow. When did you get it? I was in California. I got it in 95, I think. Oh, so it was was a decade in. Yeah. Okay. And then he did you like the dad advice. He was like, all right, now you're going to have to get last another. (laughs) You know, he did. It was so sweet um, because, like I said, I was in California and it was just rough. You know, law school was rough. And uh, couldn't afford anything. And I was just so grateful. Mm. I Boy, I loved that car. It was burgundy. It had a sunroof. I remember mm. riding around listening to uh, AZs. <laughs> Cutting that. It was a wonderful time. Yes. What, um, uh, where was the first place you went when you got it? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know what, what I used to do back then? It probably was, I was living in Oakland. Mm. And I would drive you went from like the you went to you went to the West Coast Detroit. <laughs> yeah, I did. I really I did. I went to uh, Berkeley for law school, and um, when I was out there, just to clear my head, I think you know, growing up in Detroit, we loved. I loved the river. Mm-hmm. I would drive across the Bay Bridge from mm. Oakland to San Francisco, mm. and it was just um, beautiful and uh, just the opportunity to think. But yes, that was probably the first thing I did with it. Okay. All right. Uh, next question. You are the DJ at the end of the Detroit Fireworks. You get to play two songs. You're at Woodward and Jefferson. Everybody's looking at you. What songs are you playing? All right, Woodward and Jefferson. Yep, the fireworks just ended. <laughs> uh, I get to play two? You, I usually say three. Well, I, but well like three. okay. If I did two, Knee Deep... <laughs> Ah, that's a that's a classic. That was actually one from NG Akai as well. Shout out to my man. Oh, <laughs> man, how you do 
talking to everybody. See, that's family too. Exactly. <laughs> like, 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 mom and Gia, so okay. Not just knee deep, you never go wrong with No, that. and I was so lovely. I got to experience him when he was in town that time. Downtown. Ah. Um, you know, the other one that came to mind was, of course, to wrap up the night. That's how we used to wrap up the parties was uh, before I let go. The Maze version, please. The Frankie Beverly of Maze uh, version. That's go. the only one. I don't want to talk about any remakes. We've, we've heard that before, too. <laughs> she, she did not like the homecoming <laughs> rendition. No. She may have liked the homecoming program, but it's like, yeah. It's I like, don't know. Actually, comedian, I like a Roddy Jordan has a joke about that. He was like, yeah, we was at a family reunion. They put on the Beyonce version of that, and people damn near, <laughs> they rushed the they rushed the DJ. Yeah. It's, it's sacrilegious, <laughs> but okay. Uh, a last one. Well, of course, we have to do Homegrown. I have to do Stevie. Um, ah. Which would be my one I want to hear. There's so many. Oh, it depends on it would depend on my mood. What's the end of the fireworks you said? Uh more partyish. I'd probably do like do I do or something like okay. that. Okay. Right. <laughs> keeping the people keeping the people hype. So people will be partying. <laughs> it's like if you have a birthday party and you want to uh try a new DJ that wants people dancing. <laughs> you you know who to get. Yeah. <laughs> Orchestrate that playlist. Last question. If you had to rename what word after one Detroiter, who would it be and why? Oh, my goodness. One Detroiter. Rename Woodworth. After one Detroiter. Ooh, Woodworth. So many. Come on. That's a very hard question. So I don't want to do the obvious. Obviously, I have great respect for mm-hmm. Mayor Young, but I'm not going to like, do the obvious. He's usually the vote. Like, he, I mean, he may have, on. like, 300 votes to, like, Everybody others. knows <laughs> him. I'm trying to, yeah. So I would, yes. Obviously, if you were doing Woodward, he should be. But I'm just thinking there's so many other amazing Detroiters. All right, I'm going to do it like this, because I don't know why he just popped into my head, and I feel like he deserved... Um, he's deserving of a street. Ron Scott. Mm, okay. And I just, you know, he reached out to me when I was young. Um, we didn't talk about it. I wanted to go back to, I meant to go back to your question around what was happening with affirmative action in Michigan mm. and all of that. Um, but yeah, he reached out to me and got me involved in, in some of that when I was had just moved back to the city, but also just his commitment to the work mm-hmm. and the way he, but the way he also did it, he was a mentor as well. And mm-hmm. I think um, that's just so important. Um, and that's the way you bring people into it, you know? I like it. So, yeah. I like it, yeah. Uh, Bob Ron, definitely knew him well. Um, you know, uh, a lot of story. I mean, his onboarding of even like you know, Mama Kim Shirobi always says like, "Ron has got me into this," and it's like, okay, that's mm-hmm. cool. And I'm like, oh, this is y'all hood for real. Like, oh, okay, interesting. It connected me to David Rambo. I was like young. Went on that show and we talked about yeah, some stuff that was happening in Detroit at the time. So. Yeah, legend in in this mm-hmm. media world. Is yeah, I'm, I'm working on a project where I want to bring him in. I've been for a while. I know he's like brother. You need to. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Definitely. Powerful. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Yes, yes. Peace (laughs) be.
black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store.